Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Yes, Father God, we thank you that we can just celebrate, Lord, your goodness, Lord, uh, milestones and just all kinds of good things that happen in our lives because of your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace in our lives, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for your word that we can... Um, Lord, study this morning and learn from. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that as you are here with us and in us, that you will teach us, that you will instruct us, Lord, that you will mold us through your word. And, Lord, that you will guide our hearts closer and closer to you, Lord. We, we just open up our hearts to you and we say, Holy Spirit, come and have your way in us. Thank you that you are the one who leads us into all truth. And we open our hearts for you to do that now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, those of you who want to follow in your own Bibles, you're welcome to open with me in Colossians chapter 4. <clears throat> and um, the church in Colossae, which was a big and a, quite a prominent city in, in uh, Asia Minor in the time of Paul, um, was was a church that um, they were experiencing quite a few uh, negative influences um, from the world around them, and and you know false teaching, false ideas, deception, you know all kinds of stuff. There are, there are so many ideas that get, that get thrown at us, just like at them, and and many of those ideas. Are wrong and, and even deceptive. Um, but Paul, here at the end of the letter to Colossians, he, he says to them, he, he's been saying in the whole letter, you know, be careful for negative outside influences. But yet at the end of the letter, he says, but I for basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, I'll, I'll read it to you in a moment. He basically says, even though you must be careful of, of negative and harmful outside influences, I forbid you. To be, you're not allowed to become isolated and insulated. You're not allowed to separate yourself from people in the world. Because that's the temptation. The temptation is there to say, oh, there are all these negative influences. There are all these deceptions. There are all this and that and the other thing. Therefore, we must just stay away and not have contact with the world. Not have contact with people outside the church. And Paul says, that's not an option. That's not allowed. Um, so... Um, I just want to um, read that to you in Colossians 2. I'm reading from the, <clears throat> from the um, ESV, the English Standard Version. So you'll notice that in verse 5, Paul says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, which, which obviously implies that there are those who are inside the church and those who are outside the church. Um, it's important to know that not everyone is automatically saved. Okay? Even if you're born in a Christian home and raised in a Christian home, that doesn't make you automatically saved. Just like being born in a garage doesn't automatically make you a motor car. Or being born in a bakery wouldn't automatically make you a loaf of bread. <laughs> okay? The same thing, you know. Um, 
So it, it, it would be easy for us as the church, just like the Colossian church, to isolate ourselves and insulate ourselves. Uh, but Paul forbids this. And, and he mentions, um, he basically says that even though we must be a community uh, of believers that are very different from the world, we must be a community of believers that are very accessible to the world. And, and as I'm reading, I want you to watch out for two things, because there are two main things that he says that he refers to that ensure that even though we are different from the world, we are very accessible to the world. We are not keeping the world at a distance. We are not um, standoffish. We are not um, insulated and unapproachable. Okay? And those two things, I'm just going to mention them, are number one, we must talk to God about people, and number two, we must talk to people about God. It's very simple, but actually very powerful. Okay, so those two, as, as I'm reading, um, you know, take note of those two things, see if you can see them. So he says in, Paul says in Colossians 4 verse 2 to 6, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Prayer obviously being talking to God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So, he starts off by saying, okay, you have to talk to God about people. And then he goes on and he says, but you also have to talk to people about God. And we're going to look at those two things. So under talking to God about people, he mentions two things. He mentions how we should pray, and he mentions what we should pray for. Okay? So I'm, I'm, whenever I preach, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm not just giving you a message. I'm also giving you a method. Okay? So hopefully... I mean, what I do when I prepare a sermon is just I study the Bible and then I just share what I receive from God with you. And, and hopefully, it's not just you receive what I've received, but you also learn how to receive from God by reading Scripture in a certain way. So I'm always going to try and show you how to read Scripture. I'm going to try and break things up in such a way so you can see where I get it from Scripture. I'm not just going to try and share my own ideas. So I, I, I want to encourage you um, you know, one of the things that we'll, we'll see um, in this text is that God is a good Father who always wants to give to us. And one of the main ways in which He gives to us is through His Word. So let's equip ourselves to receive as much as possible from His Word. You don't have to be a pastor or a leader or a highly educated person or, you know, whatever to be able to read the Word and receive what God wants to say to you from the Word. All of us can do that. Every single one of us. And every single one of us should do that. Okay. So, he, he's, he, he tells us, Paul tells us how to pray and what to pray for. So, let's just um, look at those two things. Firstly, let me just define prayer. One of my favorite definitions of prayer is that, uh, it's from Tim Keller. He says, prayer is the continuation of a conversation started by God. I think that's a very powerful and a very good definition. 
Prayer is a conversation with God, but it's, a, it's always a conversation that God has started through His Word and through His world, and we are constantly responding to God and interacting with God based on what He has already said to us and shown to us. Um, so Paul gives us, when he says how to pray, gives us three uh, important pointers in, on how to pray effectively. Um, our prayer should always be it should be consistent prayer. In, in, that's in verse 1. If you can just bring up the, the, the thing again. It should be consistent prayer. It should be watchful prayer. And it should be thankful prayer. Okay? So he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Consistent prayer. Being watchful. Watchful prayer. Uh, with thanksgiving. Thankful prayer. Okay, so firstly, um, I mean, if you, if you have a, a, a cell phone, you know... The longer you talk on it, the more it uses up its battery power. And then eventually when the battery dies, you can no longer talk on it. Now, in a sense, praise is like a spiritual cell phone. But its battery never goes flat. (laughs) In fact, the more you use your spiritual cell phone, the more effective it becomes. Okay? So so Paul is saying that, that, that praise is a spiritual cell phone with an unlimited battery. In fact, somehow, the more you talk on it, the better the communication becomes, the more effective it becomes. Right? And, and we've all experienced that. Um, you know, if, if you've prayed at all, you'll know that, that sometimes in the beginning, while you're praying, you sort of struggle a bit. But then if you push through, um, I had a friend who always used to call it admin, spiritual admin. He says, in the beginning when you come to God, you have to do your spiritual admin. You know, there's all kinds of thoughts flashing through your mind and distracting you, all kinds of things you feel in your heart, you know. Uh, like we were uh, praying this morning already, you know, after the worship, like you, you may be feeling a bit guilty or you're feeling, you know, a, a bit awkward. And you have to work through that spiritual admin. But if you push through that, push through the, the barriers the flesh throws up and that the devil th- throws up to you and that the world throws up to you. When you push through that, then you break and you sort of get a second breath and then all of a sudden it really flows. And the problem often is sometimes we stop when it's difficult. And what Paul is saying to us is continue steadfastly in prayer. If you really want to enjoy prayer, you have to do it consistently. It's like exercise. If you only exercise once a week, you might say, okay, I'm going to really, I'm going to exercise hard. You run hard. You run 20 kilometers. You're going to be so stiff the next day. And the next time you run in a week's time, you, you're not going to be fit. So you're going to be it's going to be the same. It's going to be like starting all over again. You're going to, your muscles are going to get sore. Your, 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 your lungs are going to burn. It's going to be unpleasant. But if you just run two, three, four kilometers every day, then in a couple of weeks' time you're going to become fit and the exercise itself is going to become pleasant and enjoyable to you. So what Paul is saying is be consistent in your prayer. If you want to pray effectively, be consistent in your prayer. And, and it also requires us to pray right. The Bible has quite a bit to say about prayer. In Bible school, like Rochelle said, I want to invite you to come to Bible school. We cover prayer amongst others in, in that as well. And it's important that you learn to pray right. Because here's the thing. If you pray wrong, you won't pray long. Because 
if you pray wrong and you're asking the wrong way and for the wrong things, you're going to ask in such a way that God cannot answer your prayers. James, we, we, as a family, we were reading through the book of James. And at some place, James says, you have not because you ask not. And, when, and you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your pleasures. <laughs> you use God as sort of a, you just come to him with a shopping list and, and you use him as a sort of a spiritual butler who must just sort of, a servant who must just sort of meet all your needs. You don't ask him for the things that you ought to ask, but you ask for the wrong things. Okay? And, and then you don't get answers to the prayers. Now, now, that's exactly what the devil wants because if I can go on with the cell phone analogy, you know, if, if prayer is a kind of spiritual cell phone, if you're constantly asking for the wrong stuff, you're going to say, this thing doesn't work. I'm not getting any reception. I'm not coming through. I'm not getting any answers. It doesn't work, and you're going to put it down, and you're not, never going to use it again. So if you're committed to prayer, commit to, pray, to learning to pray right, because none of us initially, automatically, intuitively necessarily know how to pray correctly. So commit yourself to pray right so that you can pray consistently because when you pray the right things um, according to God's word, God is going to answer your prayers and that's going to encourage you to pray more and to be more consistent in your prayer. Okay? Does that make sense? I I know what I'm saying is very obvious, but I hope it's also very helpful to you. Um, So Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And that assumes that in every Christian's life, Paul assumes that in every Christian's life, there will always be much to pray about. There'll be need, consistent need for prayer. And, and that is true. There's so much that we can and should pray about. For ourselves, we constantly need to grow and change, and, and, and we want to become more like Jesus. For our families, for our communities, uh, for our country, our city and our country, there's always need and there's always something to pray about. There's always something to, to pray for. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that prayer must become a lifestyle um, where we constantly, God is, as we sang, He's Emmanuel, He's God with us, He's constantly with us. The, the best friend, the best person in the universe is constantly with us, why would we not want to have a constant conversation with him about what we experience, what we see, what we hear, what we struggle with, what what we're joyful about, etc. So a lifestyle of prayer. So uh, consistent prayer, but then also watchful prayer, because the devil hates it when we pray, and he will do anything to stop it. The word translated watchful is a, is a military term, which means to stand guard, to be awake, to be aware, and to stand guard, to defend. And, and um, actually, I think I have a, a, a slide up, you know. Yeah. I, imagine that, that when you're praying, it's, you, you're not wearing spiritual civvies. You, you're wearing your spiritual armor. You're in a battle. You're guarding, you're defending, you're a warrior. Christian warriors fight on their knees. <laughs> you're strongest when you're on your knees, contrary to, 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 to the world. So, so the word translated watchful is a military metaphor that means, means to stand guard, to be watchful, to be awake. A good guard, guarding, say, a city or something, must be two things above all. 
be awake and be aware. Okay? Um, in, in, in the ancient Roman and even in, in modern um, armies, if you're standing guard and you fall asleep on duty, <laughs> you get into big trouble. You could actually literally lose your life in the ancient Roman army if you slept while on duty. You know, uh, and um, the one thing the devil wants us to get us to do is while he wants us to sleep on duty, he wants us to fall asleep and not pray. And, and I'm, I'm not just meaning he wants you to fall asleep during your time of prayer, but he wants you to fall asleep spiritually so that you don't want to pray, so that you cannot pray. Okay? The other thing is you must be aware. If you're awake, you must also be aware. It doesn't help just being awake. You must be aware. You must be on the lookout. It doesn't help, you know, um, you're, you're awake and you're sitting there and you, you're sort of, you know, spiritually speaking, playing on your, on your cell phone, you know. When, you, when you're playing on your cell phone, you're not aware of what's going on around you. So you, you must also be aware. You must be on the lookout for danger, for evil, for threats, for danger that, that, you, that you need to defend against for yourself and for those around you. So um, being watchful in prayer means being awake and being alert so that we can warn and defend. But then, you know, lest we get the idea that prayer is a very negative, defensive thing only, Paul says, with thanksgiving. <laughs> it, you mustn't just be watchful, you must also be thankful in your prayer. And... Um, on the one hand, you must be watchful for what is wrong so that you can warn and defend against it, but you must also be thankful for what is right. So prayer is also positively, uh, even though being watchful is being watching out for how God answers your prayers. In fact, Paul assumes that if you are consistent in prayer and watchful in prayer, then you have much opportunity to be thankful in prayer. Because if you consistently pray and pray, you know, um, earnestly while on the lookout, then God will answer your prayers and you'll have much to give thanks for. You'll have lots of answered prayers that, that you'll say, God, thank you. And part of our prayer should always be giving thanks to God for what he has already given us. Because that boosts our faith when we ask for, uh, for more. Um, Paul also assumes that whenever you pray, you will have things to be thankful for because God is a good God, a loving Father, a generous God. God wants to meet your needs. God wants to use your prayers to meet the needs of those around you because God loves them even more than you love them. And think about this. This is obvious, but once again, we need to hear this. If earthly fathers who are imperfect delight in meeting the needs of their children, how much more our perfect heavenly father, how much more does he delight in meeting our needs? Just think about this for a moment. God wants to answer your prayers. 
When you come to God, prayer is not twisting God's rubber arm. You know, and please, God, please, you know, twisting, twisting, twisting. You know, please give. Uh, our son Justin, he often asks like that. He can be very persistent because he's, he's on the autism spectrum. You know, repetitive behavior, is, is, it comes really naturally to him. So, you, you know, he asks, you know, can I play on the iPad? And then we say, no, no screen time. Please, Mama, please, Papa, can I please play just for a little while, please? And he go on and on. <laughs> now, what, what Paul is saying is, you know, God doesn't have a rubber arm. You know, when we pray, God will either ask us, God will, either, God will always answer our prayers. He'll either give us what we ask for or what we would have asked for if we knew what he knew. But he'll always, even if you ask for the wrong thing, he'll meet the underlying legitimate need. He'll give you what you ask for. He wants to give you what you ask for. Doesn't that encourage you to pray consistently? The idea that God actually wants to answer your prayers? That He delights to answer your prayers? We, we forget that, don't we? Maybe we need to remind ourselves of that by being thankful in prayer that God wants to answer our prayers. So that's how to pray. What to pray for in verse 3 and 4. Um, after briefly stating how to pray, Paul gives us some directions on what to pray for. Um, and, and here he says, he says, at the same time, praying at the same time for us, the word there in the Greek literally means simultaneously. While you're praying for yourself, the very same things that you pray for yourself, pray for us. And by implication, the very same things I'm going to ask you to pray for us, pray for yourself. Okay? And he, and he basically says two things. He, he says, pray for op- an open door for the Word and pray for clear revelation of the Word. Pray that I might clearly communicate uh, the Word. So, open door, you know, an open door was an obvious and effective metaphor for communities and hearts that are open to God's Word, to receive God's Word. And, and, and that implies that in a fallen world, not all doors are always open to the Word of God. Not all hearts are always open to the Word of God. Not all communities are always open to the Word of God. And what Paul says is that you can use prayer sometimes as a kind of spiritual battering ram to batter open the hearts uh, the doors of hearts and communities to the Word of God. Um, and, and this Word of God, what is it? The, the Greek word is a common word for, for word. It's logos. Um, and, and let me just read to you in Colossians 1 from the 3 to 6 because it, it, it clearly defines what the Word of God is. It says, We always thank God, the Father of our uh, Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So just notice how Paul in the beginning of the letter, says that he's doing what it commands the Colossians to do at the end of the letter. He's saying, I'm praying for you and I'm giving thanks for you. You know, in other words, I pray, when I tell you to do these things, I'm just telling you to do what I'm already doing. Um, Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. See, there defines what the word is. The word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You see all the connections with the scripture we're reading in in Colossians chapter 4. It talks about... The word is the word of truth. 
It's the one thing we can stand on and know. God's word is the word of truth. Um, and it is the gospel. This word that he's talking about is the gospel. It's the gospel message, the good news, in other words. In, in Colossians 1 verse 25, he says, um, I've been called, I'm a steward, a minister, and I must make the word of God fully known. So it's the word of God. The word is the word of God. It's the word of truth. It's the gospel. That's the word that, that we're talking about. Um, <clears throat> in uh, therefore, therefore um, we must pray that, that God will open up doors to the word. We must pray that God will open up doors of hearts and, and minds to the gospel. It's strange that the best news in the universe will sometimes be resisted and fall on unreceptive hearts. I mean, the gospel literally means good news. It's the best news ever, and yet sometimes hearts are not open to receive it. Doors are slammed in it. Um, I remember once hearing a story, I think it was um, Charles Spurgeon, who said he, he went to do um, sort of ice pusuk. He went, went to visit some congregants, and he knocked at the door, and he could hear. He'd, he'd sort of heard there was rustling in the house, there was movement in the house. So he knew someone was home, so he knocked, and all of a sudden he went quiet, and no one opened the door, and he, and he sort of shouted, and no one opened. And, and then he left, and... That Sunday, he saw the person at church, and he said, I was, during the week, I came to your, your house, and I knocked on, on the door, and, and the lady said, oh, was it you? I, I owe money to the bank, and I thought it was the bank coming to collect, and that's why I didn't open the door. <laughs> and so often, that's how people respond to the gospel. God comes knocking at the door of their heart, and I think it's God coming to collect, when actually it's God coming to bless and to save, and to give. And therefore, we must pray that, that God will open people's hearts. So, so, so he says, pray for, for open door for the word, and then pray also for clear revelation, um, that the, 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 this word, that this gospel will be clearly revealed, that I'll clearly reveal it. Um, so, so what is this word, this gospel, that should be revealed? The, the word, like I said, is, is the gospel, the good news. He, he defines it a bit more um, in a bit more detail, he refers to it as the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Now, now think about this for a moment. Uh, I, let me just see how, um, how the ESV states it. He says, um, it says in, in verse 4, uh, that I may make it clear. The word literally there, make it clear, literally means revealed, unveil it, reveal it. It's, it's the same word used when... When it, when at Christ's return, when Christ is revealed, okay, uh, make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So, think about this for a moment. A mystery, what is a mystery? When we think about a mystery, it's something that's, that you can't understand, that you can't see, that's hidden, that's secret. Reveal, so a mystery that is revealed is almost an oxymoron, Right? It's almost, it's a seeming contradiction. But that is what, what the gospel is. It's, it's not a mystery in the sense that it's secret and hidden and unknowable. 
And we actually see that in Colossians 1, verse 25 to 28, where Paul talks about the Word of God. He says, of which the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship um, from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. There's that same word. Now revealed to the saints. Okay? So, so the mystery here is, is not just a secret. It's a revealed secret. It's an open secret. Okay? Now revealed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known. So when... When the mystery is revealed, it's God who makes known. He chooses and then he, he, through people, makes known this mystery. Uh, To them, the people of God, uh, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom. Him we proclaim. The mystery is Christ, Christ with us, Christ in us. The mystery is, in other words, that um, it's Jesus himself. All other religious leaders, without exception, come to bring messages, supposedly from God. Okay? Whether it's Krishna or Buddha, or Muhammad, or whoever, you know, L. Ron Hubbard, you know, I don't know, <laughs> or Scientology, the guy who invented Scientology, they bring, they, they, none of them claim to be God. They, they claim to bring messages from God. So all other religious readers bring messages. Jesus is the message. He's different in the sense that he doesn't just say, I bring you a message from God. He says, I am God, I am the message. I am the mystery being revealed. I am fundamentally different. Um, and the mystery is that, that um, God became human to take our place. In, 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 in two senses. In the first sense, He took our place in living the life that we ought to have lived, that God requires us to live, but that none of us could live. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. But because we couldn't live that life, Jesus also died the death we should have died in our place. Now, that is a mystery. It's, 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 on the one hand, it's surprising. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a surprise ending to the story of God. The story of God is, is a story of, of great disappointment because God tells people, I've created you, this is what I require of you, and throughout the ages, none of God's people could do it. So it's a great disappointment on, on God's part. Um, but then God comes and he pays the price for it. It's, it's this sort of surprise um, ending. Uh, uh, some of you might have seen that movie, Sixth Sense, which is sort of a ghost story. Uh, and, and there's this character who is a supposedly a psychologist, I think, working with this boy who sees ghosts, who sees dead people. Um, and in the end of the story, the surprise twist at the end is that this psychologist or psychiatrist or whatever psychologist is himself a ghost. And he doesn't know it. That's the surprise twist at the end. But then, 
you have to take that surprise twist at the end. And when you look at the whole movie in the light of that twist, all of a sudden it makes sense because you see the psychologist only ever talks to this boy. This boy is the only one who sees him or ever interacts with him, etc. And you see it actually works. Now, in the same way, this is very important. This is very important. You need to get this. Jesus and what Jesus did on the cross is the surprise twist at the end of God's story that forces you to go back and reinterpret everything that went before. That's why it's a mystery. It's a surprise twist ending. Surprise ending that is great news. Okay? Uh, John Stott said it beautifully. He said, the essence of sin is God taking the place of man. No, sorry. The essence of sin is man taking the place of God, saying, I want to be God. I want to decide for myself what's right and wrong. I want to decide what I want to do. I want to serve myself. So the essence of sin is man taking the place of God. The essence of salvation is God taking the place of man and standing in man's place. That's the mystery. Um, So Jesus became human in order to live and die in our place. Through the Spirit, it says, the mystery of Christ. Christ means anointed king. So it's, it's through the, uh, his anointing of the Holy Spirit. He lived for us and, uh, and died for us in our place. And through the Spirit, he lives in us. He says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's through his Spirit that he lives in you. <clears throat> that he can live in you. So, you know, all other religions, and this is the mystery, all other religions is man's attempt to get to God or the gods. Christianity is unique in the sense that it's God, God's attempt to come to us, God getting to us. So religion is man getting to God. Christianity, the gospel, is God getting to man. He's Christ who came to be with us and who came to get, to get us and to save us. And, and in that sense, John Piper says his definition for evangelism is this. Evangelism is making the mystery clear. That's all that evangelism is. It's making the mystery clear so that people can understand it and respond to it. So uh, we can only clearly reveal the mystery if we clearly understand the mystery. And therefore, we must study it. That's part of why we come to church. That's part of why we, we, we study the Bible. Uh, Rochelle mentioned that the way that we m- do disciple-making, leadership development, and church planting um, is by living the gospel, loving the people, and obeying the Spirit everywhere. But we must learn the gospel if we want to live the gospel. We must learn this mystery. So Paul talks about, oh, and I don't have much time left, Paul talks about talking to God about people, but then he says what must flow out of that is talking to people about God. So he mentions uh, you know, that, that, that we must walk wisely towards outsiders. Um, Wisdom is, is knowing the will of God, even in situations where the word of God doesn't explicitly give instructions. That's wisdom. So knowing how to, 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 to act towards people in everyday life, in, in the everyday walk of life. Uh, walking here is a metaphor um, for when you walk, you go, there's a rhythm, left, right, left, right. There, in other words, you do certain things repeatedly, and our life consists of doing similar things repeatedly, getting up brushing our teeth, eating, you know, reading the word, um, uh, praying, going to work, etc. So, so there's a lot of repetition. Uh, in any given week, we typically do the same things. And what Paul is saying, as you walk 
Walk in wisdom towards those who are outside. As you re- do the re- repetitive things in your life, there are people that you repeatedly come into contact with and walk in such a way, speak to them in such a way that they actually, um, that you actually share the mystery, that you make the mystery clear to them. Um, the, it says they redeeming the time or, or making the most of the time. The word for time there is, is, you get two Greek words for time, chronos, chronological time, and then kairos. Now kairos is the one used here. That's special time, appointed time, um, season, opportunity. In other words, what it says is that there are specific, special moments as you walk with people when God has an appointment with them. And we must note those. And and if we spoke to God about them, if we're awake and aware in prayer, then we'll be more awake and aware to notice these kairos moments, these special opportunities that we must redeem, you know, we must buy it out. It's like you redeem a voucher, right? So, so it's like there are certain moments that are limited time vouchers that God gives you for a certain person. And, and you must use it or lose it. Use it, redeem it. Now, buying out or redeeming implies a cost. So it always costs you something. It costs you, you know, overcoming your fears, it costs you time because you have to take time that you would have spent shopping or working or something to actually now spend, pay attention to this person and their need, their need for God. And to, you, you, you must, but, but what Paul is saying is any time invested talking to God about people and talking to people about God is time well spent. It's a good investment. <laughs> Not just for them, but also for you. Okay? So... Um, we must take these kairos moments and we must redeem them. We must be willing to pay the price in time, in effort, uh, whatever, you know. We must invest in people's lives through prayer and then we must also invest in people's life by just spending time with them, talking to them. Now, I just want you to just stand still here for a little moment and just draw out something that's very important here. If we have kairos moments that God has appointed for us to really understand the gospel, then it means that the God of the universe, even though he's the wronged party, he takes the initiative to approach you to make an appointment with you to reach out to you and to draw you closer, to invite you closer to himself. For some of you sitting here today, now might be your Kairos moment. Now might be the moment God is reaching out to you and saying, I'm calling you closer. I actually, you thought I'm not interested in you, but I'm more than just interested in you. I love you, and I want relationship with you, and I'm calling you closer. For many of you sitting here today, now, right now is your Kairos moment. And you should be, number one, very surprised that God actually cares about you because he's, got, he's the God of the universe, and, and he's not the one who broke relationship. We're always the ones who broke relationship. But we should also be very flattered that the greatest being in the universe cares enough to make an appointment with us and to reach out to us and to vi- invite us closer, to invite us into relationship. Do you feel special? Do you feel flattered? 
You ought to. You really ought to. <laughs> but we mustn't just have we mustn't just have a wise walk. We must also have a wise wise walk must lead to wise talk. Okay? So Paul mentions three things here, and I want to close with this. He says our, our wise walk must be accompanied or must lead into, flow into wise talk. And, and he mentions three things in terms of how our speech must be wise. It must be salty speech, gracious speech, and interactive speech. And I'm, I'm going to try and do this very quickly. Um, let me see where am I. Here we go. Salty speech. He, he talks about, um, let me just read that, that portion again in verse four, 5 and 6. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best or redeeming making the best use of the kairos moments. Let your speech, once again, logos, it's the same word logos when he said um, open door for the word, same word logos, let your speech, your logos, always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And, and to me, this is very powerful and practical. He says our speech must be salty speech, seasoned with salt. Um, it's interesting, it says your speech must be gracious. Why don't I start with gracious speech? Why don't I start with salty speech? Because it literally says, let your speech be gracious, having been already seasoned with salt. So the seasoning with salt is preparation for the gracious speech that knows how to answer each person. In, in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense, for those who are, of you who are language geeks, like me. Sorry, I have to share this with someone, so... <laughs> I'm going to share it with you, <laughs> you know. And, and salt was a, was a, was a common, commonly used, very valuable in the olden days, and was commonly used for, for a few different things. I'm, just going to, not, I'm not going to mention everything. I just want to mention a few. Salt was used, and maybe you can just bring up that picture of the, the, the hand, you know, with the salt. Uh, salt was used to preserve and disinfect. It was used to add savor, taste. It was used to prepare sacrifices. All sacrifices had to be prepared by adding salt to them. Uh, and it was used to make thirsty. Okay? If, if an animal didn't want to drink water, you fed them salt and then took them to the water to, to drink. Okay? And, and all of those things in a certain way. Now, if you just go to the next picture, what Paul is saying is um, our speech. <laughs> That's the best picture I could come up. <laughs> our speech must be salty. Salt, salty speech, okay? <laughs> Hopefully that picture will help you to remember to have salty speech. <laughs> Louis, Louis going, next time I'm going to help you, you need to get better pictures. <laughs> so, so, salt was used to preserve and disinfect um, so why, why does this come first? Um, just like you prepared a sacrifice by salting it, so our speech should be a sacrifice that's prepared by salting it. So that means that you must work at your speech. You must pr- and the praying, talking to God about people is part of salting your, your speech, preparing yourself to be able to speak correctly to people, to be able to speak effectively to people in a salty way. Um, it's when you pray and talk to God about people, you're saying, God, I'm going to meet these, these, these people. You know, I'm, I'm going to drop my kids at school. I'm going to see these people. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to see these colleagues. Uh, I'm going to see these family members or these friends. God, I commit my speech to you as a sacrifice, 
And I'm asking you to use it as a salty sacrifice to bless them and to change their lives, to be a blessing to them. And then you've salted your speech. You've prepared your speech uh, like, a, like, a, like a good sacrifice. Our talk must also be different from the world. It mustn't be corrupt. The world's speech is very, very corrupt, full of corrupt words, full of corrupt concepts. In Ephesians 4 verse 29, I think I have that up um, on the screen, it says, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, the kairos moment, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Okay? Unless your speech is salty, it cannot be gracious. You ha- your speech has to be salty in, to- in, in order to be gracious. Ephesians 5 verse 4 says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead... Let there be thanksgiving. Can you see the, the, the parallels to the, the passage that we're reading? So, salty speech should then re- lead to gracious speech. As in English, Greek, the Greek chorus, grace, can mean the grace of God or graciousness. Um, our talk should be salty in the sense that, remember I said salty, salt makes you thirsty? So our talk must be salted and make people thirsty. When, when people talk to you, when people see how you live, especially in light of how you live, it should make them thirsty for what you have. The salt in your speech should make them thirsty, and the grace in your speech should quench that thirst. The salt creates the thirst. The grace is the water that quenches, the living water that quenches the thirst. Uh, in other words... When people talk to you, your speech, your interaction with them should raise their needs and their problems. Their felt needs and their problems should bring it to the surface and they should see, well, you know, I'd like to have this kind of grace when people are nasty with me that I see this colleague of mine having towards others. He doesn't retaliate. She, she always has a soft answer even when people speak hard words towards her. I, I, I'd like to have this kind of poise when things go wrong in my life. Because when she speaks to me, I can hear, you know, she has trouble with her children and, and her children's health, and yet she, she, she handles it with so much poise, and things go wrong, and there are even sometimes tragedies, but, but the, the hope and the joy with which she handles it, 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 it I, I, I don't understand it. You know, when these things happen to me, I don't have that hope, I don't have that joy. I want what she has. So... Um, the grace, um, saltiness should raise the questions, but then it should also give the answers where, where you say, I can have this joy, I can have this hope despite things going wrong in my life, not because I'm so good, but because God is so good to me. And he freely gives me all of these things, and he can freely give it to you. Okay? But then also, grace can, should just mean graciousness, that we should graciously and respectfully interact with people in, in language that is attractive to them. Now, you also just want to stop and say, one of the main reasons why we often don't speak to outsiders is because we don't feel worthy. We feel like, oh, you know, I'm not getting it right. My life is not always so different from people who are not Christians. My, my life is not... I, I don't always respond with hope. I don't always respond with joy. I, I often 
respond with odd words when people speak odd to me. I, I, I'm not always so different. And yes, you're right. None of us are. You know, if, if I had to wait to be perfect before I preached to you, I'd never preach to you. You know, sometimes my wife and I argue in the car on the way to church, <laughs> just like you do. <laughs> you see, when he says, let your speech be filled with grace, you can only speak grace, in other words, give grace to others, if you constantly receive grace from God. You see, the reason why we can give grace is because we need grace and we constantly need to receive that grace from God. You don't feel worthy? You're not. I'm not. None of us are worthy in ourselves. That's why we must constantly receive God's grace and forgiveness. And say, even though I'm not perfect, at least I'm, I'm repentant, I admit where I'm wrong, and I, and I receive God's grace for where I'm wrong and for where I miss it, and I often miss it. And that grace that I receive, I freely receive, I can then freely give to others through my speech. Okay, and then interactive speech, the last one. Um, he says that you might know how to answer each person. Just notice here how unique and how personal and specific it is. It's not blanket, one-size-fits-all answer for, you know, everyone gets the same answer. It says, knowing God wants to give a specific answer to each person. He wants us to have wisdom so we know how to answer each person. It's very personal, very specific, very individual. Answer, how to answer each person. Answers implies questions. It implies that, peop, that, that, the, that the interaction is not just a monologue, you know. When we talk to people, we have this monologue and we preach to them. No, it's, it's give and receive. It's ping pong, you know. A conversational ping pong. Question and answer. It implies that they have seen our lives, the saltiness in our lives, and they've asked questions, and we answer those questions. It also, I mean, the, the only way, effective way to, to be able to know how to answer each person is to ask those persons questions. I, I, I once heard this um, guy teaching about this, Greg Kokel, and um, he wrote a very good book, Tactics. If you can get your hands on it, you know, do yourself a favor and you can buy the Kindle or something. Um, but he said, I was on, 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 in a radio interview and someone phoned him because he's a, he's a, uh, he trains people now to do evangelism, how to share their faith. And he says, someone phoned in. I was sharing about this on, on the radio. And someone phoned in and said, I have this colleague who's a Hindu. And I don't know much about Hinduism. Can you recommend a good book that I can read so I can interact with my colleague? And he said, no, I don't want you to read a book about Hinduism so you can talk to your colleague. That won't help. The best way, because even if you read about Hinduism, it might not be the Hinduism of the specific colleague. The Hinduism might be different from the Hinduism you read about in the book. The best way to learn about the Hinduism of your colleague and to give them the right answers that they need to hear is to ask them about it. Ask your colleague, okay, I see you have this dot between your eyes. I, I think it has spiritual significance. What does it mean? What does it represent? What do you believe and why do you believe it? And then start interacting with them. Questions are so non-threatening. People love to talk about themselves. It, it's true for all of us. We, all, we, we like talking about ourselves. Questions are a non-threatening, easy way to find out about people so that you know how to answer each person. 
Ask them. Dale Carnegie, in his famous or infamous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he, he says something very short and very profound. He says, interested is interesting. Interested is interesting. You want to be an interesting person? Be interested in people. Ask them questions. Ask them about themselves. Learn about them. That's how you get to know people. And then you'll know how to answer each person. Right? Okay. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I went over my time. I want to, I want to encourage you. This is, this is not that difficult. Many of you are already doing it very well. All of us want to do it better. If I can leave you just with, with um, one or two things. Um, number one is if we constantly receive grace from God, we're going to be so excited about it that we're going to want to share it with others. If, if, if you're constantly receiving the grace of the gospel and it changes your heart and it blesses you and it lifts you up and it gives you hope and it encourages you, you're going to be so excited about it you won't be able to help sharing it with others. You know, um, I've shared this a few times before. I, I, there's this guy I met in um, Taiwan. He used to be a drug dealer. He's now a church planter. And he said the number one rule of drug dealing is don't use your own product. <laughs> Don't get addicted to your own product because if you use it yourself, you can't sell it. You can't make it much money. So that's the, that's the number one rule of being a drug dealer. The number one rule of being a Christian is smoke what you sell. <laughs> you've got to use your own product. <laughs> the grace that you want to share, you've got to receive it. Okay? You've got to smoke what you sell. Okay? Because when, when you experience the joy of God's grace and how much He loves you and how good He is to you, you, you want to help, be able to help sharing it with others. That's the one thing. And the second thing is practically ask questions. Ask people, why do you believe? Why do you believe it? Use questions to interact. And listen. When you ask questions, listen. You can only really answer well if you listen well once you've asked questions. Listen well to what people say. You can do this. And probably, at least to some extent, this has been done to you when someone shared the gospel with you and it changed your life. Don't you want other people's lives to be changed in the same way? Let's stand. Let's, let's just close our eyes. Father God, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word is the word of truth, the gospel, the good news. Thank you that it really is good news. Better than we, we, we so easily forget how, how great this news is. What a privilege it is to know the truth, to know you, and to, to make you known. Please help us to, Lord, at the beginning of this year, just again become excited about what we already have. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website, 
at www.shofar.joburg.com.